So our text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians 5, the verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's certainly true that whatever we know of the future it will often affect what we do in the present. If you know it's going to rain, you'll try to find an umbrella. If you know a big bill is coming due, you might change your spending habits, at least for a time. If you know your mother-in-law is coming over for the afternoon, you might change your morning plans and spend some time cleaning up the house. But of course, our knowledge of the future is never quite certain. Some things we simply can't anticipate. But some things are inevitable, like tires. Tires wear out, and eventually you have to replace them. When they're new, we tend to forget about them. But have you ever run on a set of old tires that should have been replaced a long time ago? Maybe you were down to a 32nd of an inch, and you still hadn't gotten around to replacing those old tires. But somewhere in the back of your mind, you knew how bad they were. How did you feel every time you drove that car? Well, the state of those tires was probably on your mind. Maybe it made you nervous. Perhaps at times you felt an impending set of doom, or at least some expectation of inconvenience. You might carefully avoid every pothole, or at least you might go out of your way to take a country road instead of the Hende, just in case, because those tires could go at any time. And eventually they will, if you don't replace them. It's inevitable. This world, brothers and sisters, is like a set of worn-out tires. And there is no option with replacing it with something new. The end is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And it can come at any time. Every day, every minute, every second brings us closer to that final day. Our theme this afternoon is about the final day. At the end of his letter, Paul prepares the Thessalonian churches for the day of the Lord. And so they ought to be unsurprised because of what they know, 
They ought to be awake because of who they are, and they ought to be sober because of what they wear. So first, they ought to be unsurprised. Our text this morning begins in chapter 5, verse 1, with the words, now concerning. Now here Paul directs our attention to a different aspect of the same topic that he had already dealt with in chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends in the verses 13 through 18 with a new teaching about the coming of the Lord, as it says in verse 15, or also as it says in chapter 3, verse 13, about the coming of the Lord Jesus. You see, after Paul had left the Thessalonian church, the believers there found themselves preoccupied with the return of Christ. They knew He was coming back, but there were many things about His return that they did not know. One of their questions involved the status of those who had already died. So at the end of chapter 4, Paul supplies what is lacking in their faith, and he explains to them that both the living and the dead will at the same time be reunited to the Lord on the day of His return. But the question that naturally follows then is when? And this is the question that Paul deals with in chapter 5. When will the Lord Jesus return? As it's translated in our text, when, what are the times and the seasons of the day of the Lord? Which means, what exactly is the precise time of His return? When exactly are things going to happen? Now, this was a common question among believers. The disciples themselves, as we had read in Matthew 24, on various occasions, they had asked Jesus about the timing of this day. This is the question that they asked Jesus privately after He had prophesied about the destruction of the temple. As we read in Matthew 24, verse 3, they asked, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And again, they ask a similar question at the beginning of Acts. In Acts 1, verse 6, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they asked Him this question, even as they betrayed their misunderstanding about what that day would be like. They said, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this is the question that Paul addresses in our text, the precise time of Christ's return. And notice how his language changes when he describes this day. Previously, in chapter 4, he was talking about the coming of the Lord. But now, in chapter 5, he writes about the day of the Lord. And this change is clear also in the headings that you might see in the ESV. The heading above chapter 4, verse 13, and also 5, verse 1. Both describe the same event, the same day. But this change of language, it reflects a change in emphasis. In chapter 4, the emphasis was on the deliverance of the saints. The coming of the Lord Jesus, it heralds the resurrection of the, our loved ones, and together with them we will be taken up in glory to finally meet our Lord and Savior face to face. But in chapter 5, the emphasis is on the final judgment, the fateful day when the world will be judged for every sin that has ever been committed against the Lord. The coming of the Lord Jesus is met with hope and with joy, but the day of the Lord is met with fear and with terror. It comes with a vengeance and it comes with destruction against the unbelieving evildoer. 
And this phrase that Paul uses, the day of the Lord, it carries strong associations, both from the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and also from the written prophecies that we have of the Old Testament. Paul's teaching about the day of the Lord here in 1 Thessalonians is a summary of the ministry of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. The words of Jesus to his disciples while they sat on the Mount of Olives, they involve and they discuss the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, as we have them in Matthew 24 and 25. And Jesus often applied the language of Old Testament prophecies to the day of his return. For example, in Matthew 24, verse 29, he quotes from Joel 2, verse 30, where it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, the Old Testament prophecies, they pointed to a time in the near future, a time when God would bring divine judgment against His people or the surrounding nations, either directly like through the flood or through the Red Sea, for example, or through another nation, through the Israelites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. But every instance of divine justice, of divine judgment in a previous age, it foreshadows the final judgment of God, that great and final day of the Lord. Now, this coming judgment, this final culmination of human history was a familiar concept to the Jews. They had the Old Testament prophecies. But this idea was relatively unknown among the Gentiles. And so it was an important part of the gospel message that they received. Consider how the Apostle Paul ends his speech on the Areopagus, the speech to the philosophers of Athens in Acts 17 verse 31. He says, And God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this knowledge about the day of judgment, this is an essential part of our faith. We learn about this day from the prophecies of the Old Testament, and we learn about them through the words of our chief prophet, Jesus Christ. And we see now how important it was also for the mission of the gospel as it spread among the Gentiles, according to Christ's command. This point of doctrine is found in every creed that we confess and every confession that we have. But how often do we think about it? How often do we talk about it? Do we pray about it? Does it form a part of the gospel message that we bring to our neighbors? And brothers and sisters, consider the concept of judgment itself. There are many elements in society and in culture which pervert the idea of justice. There is no sense of right and wrong. There's no foundation for what is just and good. And the concept of punitive justice is ridiculed as an old-fashioned idea. But do we, brothers and sisters, even in our own midst, do we, when we interact with each other, when we teach our children, do we maintain a strong sense of justice? God's justice is the very foundation of the gospel message. We confess, we know, we experience the mercy of God, but God is merciful only in Christ. Only through Christ have we forgotten why Christ came. There was a cost 
A punishment had to be met. We receive the mercy of God at a cost. Christ was punished for our sins. The only way that we escaped our punishment was through the punishment of another. And this is what the day of the Lord will bring. It will bring justice. But when will it come? The Thessalonians had already received instructions on this matter. They are, as Paul writes, they are fully aware. And they have no need for anything to be written to them. And so he reminds them of what they already know by quickly referring to three analogies. These analogies were all used by Jesus on the Mount of Olives to teach something about the day of his return. Now, the first analogy is the thief in the night. This corresponds to what our Lord Jesus taught us in Matthew 24, verse 43. The day will come like a thief in the night. With all the uncertainty and the suddenness of a home invasion, which can, which will happen during the course of the long night, it is inherently unpredictable, and it will happen at a time when the house least expects. This is how the day of the Lord will come. No one knows the day or moment. As Christ also says in Acts 1 verse 7, it is not for us to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. This knowledge, precisely when our Lord Jesus will return, it falls within the category of the secret things of God, which are known only to God. But we do know that this day will come, and it could come at any time, and for most, it will come as a surprise. The second analogy that Paul mentions is that of a nation which lies under a false sense of security, peace, and security, it says to itself, and it pretends that everything is okay, but soon this security is swept away as complete destruction comes upon them. This is not, you could say, a pleasant surprise. Now, we can think of many examples in history where this analogy plays out. Our Lord Jesus uses the example of the time of Noah in Matthew 24, verse 37. In the days before the flood, people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage, the very picture of peace and security, until the very day that Noah entered the ark. They were completely unaware, living life as they had before until it was too late, until the flood came and swept them all away. Likewise, no one knows the day or moment, but the final judgment will completely shatter any pretense of peace or security that we have. Brothers and sisters, because the final judgment is still coming, there can be no lasting true peace apart from Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Now consider this, we live now at this moment in a time of unprecedented peace. But we need only to open a history book or turn on the evening news to be reminded that our peace and security is only a pretense. Nero, Genghis Khan, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, tragedies, rumors of tragedies, man-made and natural disasters, unspeakable suffering and torment and death experienced around the world as a consequence of sin, reminding us that a reckoning for sin is still coming. 
And brothers and sisters, if these horrible and terrible events are only a consequence of sin, a reminder, a shadow of what is to come, how much worse will the judgment be? How much worse God's actual punishment against the sin of the world? If we can comprehend this, then we can comprehend the wrath of God endured by Christ on the cross. He bore, as we confess, Christ bore the full measure of God's wrath against our sin, a wrath that we can only glimpse through the preview that plays out in the world's worst tragedies. And we see these things now as the Thessalonians did in their day. And if our eyes are open to the evil and to the injustice in this world, then we are reminded that God's final judgment is still coming. As Jesus explains in Matthew 24, verse 8, all these signs that we see today, they're only the beginning of birth pains, labor pains, pains which are themselves the part of the curse of sin. This is Paul's last analogy in verse 3 of our text. Labor pains come suddenly. It's impossible to know exactly when, but they do inevitably come. They will come. As surely as the baby is growing inside the womb, the time of delivery will come, and it will come with pain. The day of the Lord is inevitable. As sure as there is sin in this world, sin which was born at the fall and continues to grow until it is fully grown leads to eternal punishment. As sure as there is sin in this world, the final judgment will come. And not only is it inevitable, it is inescapable. As Paul writes at the end of verse 3, there is no escape from divine judgment. There is no escape from the punishment of an infinite and all seeing a perfectly just God. The prophet Amos illustrates this in a way that even a child can appreciate. In Amos 5, verse 18 to 20, he writes this. He writes, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is like if a man escapes from a lion only to meet a bear. Or if he goes into a house, having escaped the bear, for example, fleeing into his safe space, and leans against the wall with his hand only to be bit by a snake. There is no escape. The day of the Lord is coming. As surely as there is sin in this world, it's coming. And it's coming with a vengeance against sin that no man can endure with complete and utter destruction against the unbelieving evildoer. And no one knows, no one can know, the hour or the day when it will come. All this, brothers and sisters, is what the Thessalonians had been taught. This is what they are fully aware of, as Paul writes in verse 2. And this is what Paul reminds them of with these three analogies. He reminds them of the words of Jesus on the Mount of Olives. They know exactly what the day of the Lord is, it is a day of judgment. They know that it is coming, that it is inevitable, and they know how it is coming. It's coming suddenly and secretly. And so, brothers and sisters, they are prepared to stand unsurprised when it comes exactly as they know. So this brings us to our second point. The Thessalonian believers ought to be awake because of who they are. In verse 5 of our text, Paul moves very quickly from three analogies to setting up a contrast, a contrast between the children of the light and those of the darkness. 
But you, he says to the Thessalonians, you are all children of the light. You do not live in darkness for that day to surprise you. Your eyes are opened. You have been enlightened by the gospel that you have received. The Thessalonian believers are now already children of light. Once again, Paul here borrows the language of the Old Testament prophets. Consider Isaiah 9 verse 2, where it says that they were a people who once walked in darkness, but now they have seen a great light. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness, but now on them the light has shone. And what is this light? The Father, as we read in Colossians 1 verse 13, the Father gives them a share in the inheritance of the kingdom of His beloved Son, a share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has transferred them from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is this light. As He Himself said in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not be in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so the Thessalonian believers, they must walk, they must behave, they must conduct themselves as those who are in the light, those who are in Christ. Now Paul presses the contrast in the following verses, in the verses 7 through 8. Who we are determines how we behave. You are children of the light, so do not behave as those who live in the darkness. Do not sleep and do not get drunk. Those things are done in darkness. Now, both those words, falling asleep and getting drunk, they are used in a metaphorical sense. Paul is not speaking only about physical sleep or literal drunkenness. He's saying more than that. Asleep means to be distracted from divine things, a kind of spiritual indifference insensitive to what is actually going on. In this life, one might be wide awake for earthly activity, but spiritually asleep, completely unaware of the things of God, morally dead, not knowing anything about sin, not knowing anything about salvation or service, and not knowing anything about God. That is what it means to be asleep. A sleeper is insensible. Think about Jonah the prophet Jonah, the prophet who fell asleep deep inside the ship while there was a great wind and a mighty tempest so the ship threatened to break up. The sailors were crying out for their lives, but Jonah was asleep, completely unaware of what was going on around him, having eyes that did not see, ears that did not hear because he was asleep while his very life hung in the balance. That's how those in darkness live. And a sleeper is defenseless. Consider Samson. Endowed by God with incredible strength and courage and a mission to match, his great strength was proven many times, 10 or 11 times. Yet falling asleep on the knees of Delilah, and he was as defenseless as a baby, as helpless as a child, as we can read in Judges 16, verse 19 to 20. That's how those in darkness live. And Paul also describes those of the darkness as getting drunk. Now, perhaps you've seen someone drunk. You've seen how senseless they begin to behave. Then you have some idea of what Paul is saying here when he applies this word to our spiritual well-being. 
By getting drunk, Paul means that those who live in darkness, they put themselves under the influence of excess, of passions, or rashness, or confusion. They indulge on the things of this life, and they take too lightly or completely neglect the spiritual risks of certain behavior. They're unable to make wise decisions, and they love this earthly life a little bit too much. And this danger, brothers and sisters, is present for all of us. Think about Solomon. Solomon, a good king, a righteous king. David's son, a wise man. A wise man who stumbled like a fool under the influence of his foreign wives. And think about the Thessalonian Jews, as you can read about them in Acts 17. The Jews who lived in Thessalonica. Even though they were immeasurably immeasurably blessed by God, having received the covenant, having received the law, having received the prophets and the psalms, even though they sang songs about incorporating foreign nations into the covenant community, they became drunk on jealousy, as we can read in Acts 17 verse 5. They persecuted the Christians in Thessalonica and Berea, topping up the measure of their sins and ultimately suffering the wrath of God. Watch yourselves, our Lord Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this world. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape those things that are going to take place. This, brothers and sisters, is how Paul writes to the Thessalonians, emphasizing who they are in Christ. They must not live in darkness, as if in ignorance, prone to sleep and to drunkenness. They have received the light of the gospel and are children of the day. And so they must live as one lives in the day, awake and alert and sober-minded to stand ready for that final day. And brothers and sisters, through Christ, we are also of the day. This exhortation applies also to us. And in order to impress on us how careful we must be in this matter, notice that Paul also includes himself in this exhortation. In verse 6, he says, So let us not sleep. Let us keep awake and be sober. So just as it is strange to sleep in the day, let us be ready watching and waiting for the return of Christ. Let us be attentive in our prayers, praying for His return and reminding ourselves that it could happen at any moment. No one knows the day or moment. And this, brothers and sisters, is a blessing because knowing precisely when our Lord would come would certainly tempt us to sleep. And just as it is strange to sleep in the midst of a battle, let us be diligent in our struggle against sin, against the devil and against our own flesh. Use what God has given you. Use the Word and His Spirit to persist in this fight. And keep your eyes open to the sin, the injustice, and the suffering in this world. A false sense of peace and security will certainly lull us to sleep. And let us be steadfast in our hope. We wait eagerly for the sun from heaven, as Paul writes in his first chapter of his letter. In chapter 1, verse 10, we wait eagerly for the one who was raised from the dead and delivers us from the wrath that is to come. 
we know that the day of judgment is coming and that no one will escape except those of us who are already in Christ. We know the day will come with complete destruction against the unbelieving evildoer. Every man and every woman will have to give an account for every evil thing that they have done. And we, brothers and sisters, we have the solution. We have the antidote, the gospel, which is freely given. So don't sleep on the solution. Share it. Make the most of every opportunity to warn people about the judgment that is to come. This brings us to our third and final point. The Thessalonian believers, they ought to be sober because of what they wear. It's a play on words, I think. In the verse 8 of our text, Paul makes his last exhortation. He says, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation. Notice how he puts these two things together. We ought to be sober, seeing as we are equipped for battle. This is what it means to be sober, to put on the gifts of faith and love and hope. This is what sober looks like. This is the armor of light, as it is called in Romans 13, verse 12. Because the Thessalonian believers now belong to the kingdom of light, they wear the colors of their new kingdom, faith, love, and hope. As Paul has made clear throughout this letter, the Thessalonian church had been well equipped by God. They had received the gifts of faith, love, and hope in increasing measure, and they have been faithful in their use of them. And so Paul encourages them more and more and presses them on towards perfection, not because the armor itself will save them, but because they have been destined, he says in verse 9, they have been destined to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. These gifts of God, faith, love, and hope, they all find reference in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith believes in the person and the work of Christ. Love is founded on His perfect love, demonstrated for us on the cross. And hope, hope looks to His return, the return of Christ. And so equipped, the Thessalonian Christians are, you could say, they are on the job. They're on duty. They are ready for battle. And being sober-minded in this context, that makes sense, doesn't it? We don't go to work drunk. Would you trust a drunk pilot to fly a plane, a drunk soldier to stand guard, or a drunk lawyer to represent you in court? The same is true for you, beloved. As long as you bear the name of Christ, as long as the Spirit dwells in your hearts, you are on duty. You're always on duty as Christians. You're always on guard. The gifts of faith, love, and hope that are evident in your life, they demonstrate your service and your allegiance to God. So as a Christian, you're always in uniform, and you always will be a Christian. There is never a time when you are not a Christian. So be alert, be sober-minded, and prepare yourself for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when He comes, because we live for Him, brothers and sisters, we do not stand in fear of that day. There is no longer a fearful expectation of judgment. There is no longer a fury of fire that will consume us because we wait for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior is our judge, the very same person who had before submitted himself to the wrath of God. 
He is our judge. So, beloved congregation, how are we doing? Are we prepared? Or will we be surprised? Are we awake to the urgency of our time? Do we pray for the return of Christ? Do we remind each other of this every day? As Paul writes in verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up all the more as we see that day approaching. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen.